Hello, welcome to a special edition of A Good Walk Spoiled. This is a full interview, as promised, with Tom Mabry, the Chief Executive Officer of the Southwest Heritage Trust, that took place in Taunton Castle, which is now the Museum of Somerset. In this interview, Tom covers in greater depth than the walk, the Monmouth Rebellion, and the subsequent Bloody Assizes, covering some of the major characters of the period. And listen out for a mention of how creator of Desert Island Discs, Roy Plumley, relates to the story. We start off by asking Tom to outline the history of the castle. Well, the castle was created by the bishops of Winchester, who were very major landlords throughout southern England. The earliest visible elements of the castle are 12th century, uh, but it, it was added to and modified in every century after that, including the 20th and even the 21st centuries. So it's very much a, a building that has grown, and its historic character is sometimes difficult to discover. But two spaces in the castle are, are particularly resonant. The Great Hall, which is uh, next to us uh, here, uh, which is where the Bloody Assizes took place and where uh, the bishops of Winchester in earlier times had entertained guests like Henry III and King John. And now we're in what we call the Rebellion Gallery, but which is a, a vaulted undercroft space dating from the 12th and 13th centuries. And the reason the gallery is here is because this is where some of the prisoners were almost certainly kept uh, in advance of the Bloody Assizes in 1685. The castle has a very, very rich and varied history from the early Middle Ages, well, right up to its present reinvention as the museum. What was the Monmouth Rebellion? The Monmouth Rebellion was uh, an attempt under the leadership of the Duke of Monmouth, who was the first and favourite but illegitimate son of Charles II, to overthrow his uncle, James II. It happened in 1685, which is the same year in which Charles II died in February that year, and James II came to the throne. England had lived through the Civil War. It had cast off the Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, uh, but James II was a Catholic, and that was the basic heart of the argument. The Duke of Monmouth and those who supported him, which was a lot of people in the west of England, didn't want to be ruled by a Catholic monarch. And a monarch, moreover, who was beginning to build a standing army and to do all kinds of things which looked contrary to the interests of the Protestant English. Monmouth had been in the West Country in 1680, five years before the rebellion. He was the darling of the crowds, the favourite of his father, and had been greeted on a grand progress through the West Country at places like White Lackington by the Speak family, at Longleat by the Thin family, and by others too. Though some had studiously avoided meeting him because they could see that he was a man who could uh, cause trouble. Sir William Portman, who lived at Orchard Portman near Taunton, for example, although Monmouth wanted to uh, visit Orchard Portman on his grand tour, that didn't actually happen. So there were gentry who greeted him warmly. They were generally, well, they were all Whigs. That was opponents of the court. But some were canny and decided that they weren't going to throw in their lot with a potential rebel. So Sir William Portman was one who stood aloof. But because of the warmth of the greeting he received in 1680, Monmouth felt five years later, and really very soon after the death of his father, that that same support would be manifested second time round. But, of course, the stakes were much higher now. And as it happened, when the rebellion played out, the gentry, the Whig gentry, were almost, well, virtually completely absent from his active supporters. 
and he had to depend instead on some prosperous tradesmen, yeomen, farmers, labourers, but a class of society which didn't include the people who actually made the country tick. So he misjudged his moment. What happened during the rebellion, and how did it start? There were all kinds of rumours in Taunton that something was afoot. Horsemen were seen riding in the night in early June past Oberidge Mill. People suspected that something was up. Exeter barred its gates because it thought something might happen. Taunton, it was said in early June, was, was peaceable, was quiet. Everything seemed fine. And messages were sent to the new King James II to reassure him. But then, on the 11th of June... Uh, a messenger arrived out of breath late at night uh, at Orchard Portman to bring news to Sir William Portman's household. He wasn't there, he was in London, that Monmouth had indeed landed at Lyme Regis. And Sir William's steward, Thomas Axe, immediately set out on horseback through the darkness uh, to see whether it was true and brought back the news to Orchard and to Taunton that Monmouth had indeed arrived uh, and that there were some 1,500 followers gathering to him. Uh, Thomas Axe became really important in this process now. He was a well-known Taunton figure and Sir William Portman's steward for many years. Uh, he went post-haste to London to take that news to Sir William and to the King. And on that basis, the militia was mobilised. Sir William Portman and others were told to take over the militia in Dorset and to, to prepare to resist. Monmouth, with his growing rebel army, marched northward from Lyme Regis uh, eventually reached Chard and then Ilminster and then a week later on the 18th of June he arrived in Taunton where he was greeted ecstatically flowers were strewn in his path it was as if uh, a new messiah had arrived the person who was going to save them from a Catholic king from a Catholic destiny Monmouth lodged when he was in the town with John Hucker a Taunton surge maker who lived in a house almost opposite what is now Walston's uh, in 4th Street and over the two full days that he stayed here, various ceremonies were enacted. The 17 maids of Taunton presented him with colours for his troops. Mary Blake, a schoolmistress, presented him with a naked sword and a Bible. And he was also proclaimed king at the Market Cross, which stood at the junction of High Street and Fourth Street, very near where I think there is still a red pillar box. So when anyone posts a letter in that red pillar box, you're standing very near where something extraordinary in English history happened, which is that a, a rebel king was proclaimed. That hadn't evidently been his original intention, actually to claim kingship rather than just to depose his uncle, but that's what he was persuaded to do. But of course that, again, raised the stakes to the highest pitch. This was the highest of high treason, someone claiming that they were the rightful king. He marched onwards by a long and circuitous route that took in Bridgewater, Wells, uh, Norton St. Philip and other places. But instead of either striking out to take Bristol or striking eastward to take London, he doubled back. Either he lost his courage or he knew that uh, his situation was very difficult. He landed up in Bridgewater with the Royal Army gathered at Western Zoyland. There's a really interesting object in this gallery, which is a spyglass of William Spark, a very crude spyglass. William Spark was a farmer from Chedzoy. He went up Chedzoy Church Tower and looked out from the tower with his spyglass towards Western Zoyland. He saw the royal troops gathering there. He saw that they were relatively lightly defended, and he sent a message by his apprentice into Bridgewater to advise Monmouth that the royal army was lightly defended and that if he made a night attack 
over the Moors from the north, he might prevail. So that spyglass has a fairly baleful part in the history of the story because, of course, that, uh, that advice and information proved to be fatally flawed and it didn't work out like that. But on the 6th of July, he did steal over the Moors in darkness and he was on the point of reaching Western Zoyland and the Royal Army with only the Bussex Reen between his army and theirs when a shot, a musket shot, was fired in the darkness. No one really knew who it was but later it was claimed that it was uh, John Hucker, the Taunton surge maker, who was one of Monmouth's captains, colonels, one of the leaders of his army. And John Hucker vehemently denied that he had fired this musket shot and thus destroyed the element of surprise. But he was captured. He was imprisoned in Taunton Castle, possibly in this very space where we are. It was kind of a loose imprisonment during July 1685, and the bloody assizes didn't happen until September, so there was a long wait. And the women of the town were able to bring food uh, to their menfolk who were imprisoned in the Great Hall in here. But when they saw John Hucker, they would attack him as the person who had fired the musket shot and thus betrayed the whole enterprise. And he denied to his dying breath that he had fired the shot. But that dying breath was breezed on the Cornhill, the marketplace in the centre of Taunton, where he was hanged, drawn and quartered. So he lost his life and he lost his reputation. The two sides met at the Battle of Sedgemoor in 1685. The two armies were very different in composition. What can you tell us about the Royal Army? Yes, it, it was led by the Earl of Feversham, who was French by origin and seemed to have suffered from narcolepsy. When the news came that the rebels have arrived, and this is sort of the middle of the night, they went to the Earl of Feversham, who was sleeping in, I think, the manor house at that existed at Western Zoyland, and they couldn't wake him up. They shouted in his ear, they shook him, but Feversham <laughs> was lost to the world. They couldn't wake him up. John Churchill was also there, the man who was, who was going to earn such high praise and become the, the Duke of Marlborough. So even in spite of the fact that their commander was asleep, uh, the Royal Army was in a much better position to win the day, and indeed they did. Uh, and, and the battle was fought over the Bussex Ring. And metal detectorists in recent times have been able to, to map the scatter of lead shot and to see where the, the concentration of fire uh, was taking place. Another person who was there was Peter Muse, the uh, Bishop of Winchester, who'd come down to teach his rebellious tenants, his Taunton Dean tenants, a lesson, and who commanded uh, one of the, the, the cannon that uh, fired across the Bussex Ring and uh, put flight to the rebel army. The Royal Army were professional and battle-hardened. What about the Rebel Army? It's been nicknamed the Pitchfork Army, and that's not about 100 miles from the truth. They got their weapons where they could, and they were hopelessly outgunned when the battle came. There are various estimates of the numbers of the rebels. They vary from between 5,000 and 10,000, and the, the, the truth is probably lurks somewhere in the midst. There were a lot of rebels, but they were not trained they were essentially people who earned their living from trade on the land, and uh, they were never going to be a match for, for a royal army in a country which hadn't yet decided that it wanted to rise against its king. So it was a hopeless cause. Eventually they, they fled. They, they fought bravely, but it was a lost cause, really. They fled over the Chedzoy cornfields, where a lot of them were cut down, um, and many hundreds of them were captured. So hundreds died and hundreds were captured. Uh, there are many, many bodies still undiscovered in the fields of Chedzoy and Western Zoyland.
What happened to the Duke of Monmouth? Monmouth fled from the battlefield. He stayed there. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a cowardly flight. He he stayed there almost to the bitter end. But he did flee first northwards and then east and south into Dorset, evidently looking for a, a boat that would take him to safety across the Channel. Sir William Portman was in command of the Dorset militia, his yellow coats, and eventually uh, he and others closed on a place near Ringwood in Hampshire, just over the Hampshire border, where uh, an old woman called Amy Farrant had said she had seen a man going to hide in a ditch. They closed in on the place and some soldiers found Monmouth hidden in a ditch under bracken and firs. Sir William Portman almost immediately rode in and silenced the calls of those who were uh, saying that he should be shot there and then. He took him as his prisoner and he found the evidence of who the man was because this brilliant courtier, whom Sir William must have known well from the Royal Court in London, uh, was now uh, unkempt, unshaven, dressed as a, as a peasant because he exchanged clothes. And the only proofs that this was in, indeed the brilliant Monmouth were uh, various possessions that he had about him, and in particular his George, the, the, the symbol of his being a member of the, of the Order of the Garter, uh, an honour that his father had done to him when he was still a, virtually a child at the age of 13 or 14. And the George insignia was immediately sent to London as proof to King James that Monmouth had been captured. And he was taken by slow stages to London uh, under guard of Sir William Portman and others and handed over to the king. He pleaded for mercy from his uncle, but it was, as I say, the highest of high treason. And on the 15th of July, before a great and silent crowd on Tower Hill, uh, he was beheaded. He'd asked the, the axeman to be sure that the axe was sharp. He, he tested it with his thumb or his fingers and said it didn't, didn't feel very sharp. The axeman tried once and it sort of bounced off the, the poor, poor Monmouth. He looked up accusingly at the executioner. Well, he had another go and then, then I think he threw down the axe and eventually it took several blows uh, uh, and the insistence of the officers there that he should carry on and complete the execution before Monmouth was actually dead. Sir William Portman, who, who had been Monmouth's captor, didn't live much longer. This could have been the moment when uh, his political career hit its highest pitch. He was already, already a very wealthy landowner around Taunton and in Somerset as a whole and in Dorset. But he fell ill because he'd always been consumptive. And uh, soon after greeting William of Orange at Brixham at the beginning of the glorious revolution, that peaceful revolution, he died at Orchard Portman. And he's buried in the family vault in the little church at Orchard Portman. Um, it's, that's a, in a way, his story is completely unknown. But the man who captured Monmouth, who in a way brought the rebellion to an end, lies buried at Orchard Portman. What happened to Monmouth's supporters? The rebels endured a variety of fates. Some were summarily executed in Taunton under Colonel Kirk, who was a, a ruthless royalist commander. 19 of them were, were reputedly executed here in Taunton in July, very shortly after the battle. They were hanged, drawn and quartered, which was the sentence for high treason. And it was said that the fifes played and the drums sounded to, to drown out the cries of the dying men and that the hangman stood ankle deep in blood through the terrible process of almost killing the person, cutting them down, opening them up, eviscerating them, uh, etc., so it, it, was a, it was a very terrible scene. 
Those were the first uh, mass executions that followed the, followed the battle. Then the bloody assizes happened in September 1685. We've left the rebellion gallery behind us. We're now standing in the Great Hall. Tom, what can you tell us about the history? Well, the Great Hall is uh, in origin a 12th century structure, but it was modified in many centuries thereafter. And in 1685, it was the Assize Hall. It was one of the the uses of the hall was as the setting for the Assizes. Earlier, it had been a place where the Bishop of Winchester would grandly gather with his guests. And as I mentioned earlier, those guests included Henry III, uh, Henry III's father, King John, and no doubt many other people as well. So many trials for high crimes were heard here, and many people were sentenced to death. But nothing as striking and as terrible happened in this hall uh, to exceed the bloody assizes. What were the bloody assizes? The bloody assizes happened in September 1685, when Judge Jeffreys went on circuit from Winchester to Dorchester, Taunton, Wells, Bristol, to hear those who were accused of high treason for their participation in the Monmouth Rebellion. The most famous session of the Bloody Assizes probably took place here over two days in September 1685. Judge Jeffreys may have stayed in Castle House, which is the little domestic building on the other side of the castle courtyard here, and he would have presided at the bench at this end of the hall. Anyone who knows the museum as it's presently laid out will know the Loham pavement, the Roman mosaic. Well, the judge's bench would have stood at this end of the hall. And over two days, hundreds of prisoners were brought before Judge Jeffreys. They were asked whether they were guilty or not guilty. A few in the early stages pleaded not guilty and were immediately sentenced to death. The rest were persuaded that pleading guilty was the better option. And so the the vast majority of those who were tried in this hall pleaded guilty. 144 of them were sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered. Most of the rest were sentenced to transportation. A a lesser punishment than than death. Um, It meant that you were put on a ship and were taken to the West Indies. A few people found their way back to the shores of England, but for the most part, uh, people's lives were then then led under harsh conditions until they achieved their freedom, if they did, in the setting and climate of the West Indies. So the bloody assizes as a whole, if you take them uh, over the various places where the sessions uh, of the assizes met, led to more executions for high treason as a result of a a single event than in the whole history of the sentence uh, for high treason from the Middle Ages to the 19th century. It was an extraordinary moment in the whole judicial history of of England. Judge Jeffreys was a controversial figure, wasn't he? And there's an interesting document here that we picked out which relates to his personal circumstances at the time of the Assizes. It's a bit dog-eared. It was collected by uh, Roy Plumley, the, the first presenter of Desert Highland Discs. Um, he was a descendant of someone who participated in the rebellion, and he collected various items and later donated them to uh, the Somerset Record Office. It's Judge Jeffrey's medical bill, not from the time of the rebellion, it's before the rebellion, uh, but it, it indicates something about Judge Jeffreys because he was taking all kinds of potions and pills to quell the symptoms of the stone, of gallstones. It's likely, on the evidence of that medical bill and other evidence, that 
he was in terrible pain quite a lot of the time from, from this medical condition. And it's said that his severity on the judicial bench here in Taunton Castle and elsewhere was partly driven by the fact that he was in terrible pain. But even that seems to me not much of a justification for what happened here in 1685. Pesky gallstones causing uh, irritability on the bench. Yes, gallstones have got a lot to answer for. But on the other hand, I think Judge Jeffreys wasn't a very nice man. But then I suppose judges weren't intended to be nice people in those days. Some have tried to defend what he did, saying that it was inevitable that uh, where treason had taken place on such a scale and where someone had pretended to be the king uh, and where the whole uh, order of of the nation was in danger of being overthrown, that he had no choice but to be exemplary in the punishments he doled out. But even so, it left a, a dark and lingering memory in the West Country, and one which I suppose in a way still hasn't, hasn't faded entirely. The folk memories have gone down the generations, so that people in the West Country, certainly people who were born in the West Country, will always know about Judge Jeffreys and the Bloody Assizes. And it's not because they've read it in books, it's because they've heard about it. It's a, a tale whose horror has lessened over the centuries, but which has been passed down through the generations as being one of the utterly key events in the history of the West Country. If you weren't transported, what was your fate? There are some indications of what happened, some narrative accounts uh, relating to Taunton Castle, where a further 19 rebels were hanged, drawn and quartered at, on the Cornhill. And there's a description of how one of the prisoners uh, was taken from the castle to, to execution. And part of the sentence for high treason was that you had to be dragged to the place of execution. At that stage, that was interpreted as placing them on a hurdle behind a horse and dragging them on the hurdle to the place of execution. And there's a description, which may be apocryphal, but I, I, I tend to think that it's true, of the horse and the hurdle in the courtyard here at the castle with the prisoner on the hurdle and the horse refusing to draw, refusing to participate in this gruesome ceremony of death. They had to whip the horse and cajole the horse till finally uh, it was persuaded to drag the, the, the poor condemned man from Taunton Castle on the very short journey to the Cornhill, which is, was more or less where the Burma War Memorial uh, uh, outside the market house now stands. Our thanks to Tom for his time. Yes, he was fantastically knowledgeable. And to the museum, they made us very welcome. Thanks for listening. We have more specials coming our way with the Bristol Doors Open Day 2016 that we recorded in early September. And not to mention the next episode of A Good Walk Spoiled, which will be in Bath. Keep in touch on social media at GWS Pod, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>